0: Section 22 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901 to 1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joanne Turner. Theodore Roosevelt, December 3, 1906, Part 3. I am well aware that such a subject as this needs long and careful study in order that the people may become familiar with what is proposed to be done, may clearly see the necessity of proceeding with wisdom and self-restraint, and may make up their minds just how far they are willing to go in the matter, while only trained legislators can work out the project in necessary detail. But I feel that in the near future, our national legislators should enact a law providing for a graduated inheritance tax by which a steadily increasing rate of duty should be put upon all monies or other valuables coming by gift, bequest, or devise to any individual or corporation. It may be well to make the tax heavy in proportion as the individual benefited is remote of kin. In any event, in my judgment, the prorata of the tax should increase very heavily with the increase of the amount left to any one individual after a certain point has been reached. It is most desirable to encourage thrift and ambition, and a potent source of thrift and ambition is the desire on the part of the breadwinner to leave his children well off. This object can be attained by making the tax very small on moderate amounts of property left because the prime object should be to put a constantly increasing burden on the inheritance of those swollen fortunes which it is certainly of no benefit to this country to perpetuate. There can be no question of the ethical propriety of the government thus determining the conditions upon which any gift or inheritance should be received. Exactly how far the inheritance tax would, as an incident, have the effect of limiting the transmission by devise or gift of the enormous fortunes in question, it is not necessary at present to discuss. It is wise that progress in this direction should be gradual. At first, a permanent national inheritance tax, while it might be more substantial than any such tax has hitherto been, need not approximate, either in amount or in the extent of the increase by graduation, to what such a tax should ultimately be. This species of tax has again and again been imposed, although only temporarily, by the national government. It was first imposed by the Act of July 6, 1797, when the makers of the Constitution were alive and at the head of affairs. It was a graduated tax. Though small in amount, the rate was increased with the amount left to any individual, exceptions being made in the case of certain close kin. A similar tax was again imposed by the Act of July 1, 1862, a minimum sum of $1,000 in personal property being accepted from taxation, the tax then becoming progressive according to the remoteness of kin. The War Revenue Act of June 13, 1898, provided for an inheritance tax on any sum exceeding the value of $10,000. The rate of the tax increasing, both in accordance with the amounts left and in accordance with the legatee's remoteness of kin. The Supreme Court has held that the succession tax imposed at the time of the Civil War was not a direct tax, but an impost or excise, which was both constitutional and valid. More recently, the court, in an opinion delivered by Mr. Justice White, which contained an exceedingly able and elaborate discussion of the powers of the Congress to impose death duties, sustained the constitutionality of the Inheritance Tax feature of the War Revenue Act of 1898. In its incidence, and apart from the main purpose of raising revenue, an income tax stands on an entirely different footing from an inheritance tax, because it involves no question of the perpetuation of fortunes swollen to an unhealthy size. The question is, in its essence, a question of the proper adjustment of burdens to benefits. As the law now stands, it is undoubtedly difficult to devise a national income tax which shall be constitutional. But whether it is absolutely impossible is another question and, if possible, it is most certainly desirable. The first purely income tax law was passed by the Congress in 1861, but the most important law dealing with the subject was that of 1894. This the Court held to be unconstitutional. The question is undoubtedly very intricate, delicate, and troublesome. The decision of the court was only reached by one majority. It is the law of the land and, of course, is accepted as such and loyally obeyed by all good citizens. Nevertheless, the hesitation evidently felt by the court as a whole in coming to a conclusion when considered together with the previous decisions on this subject, may perhaps indicate the possibility of devising a constitutional income tax law which shall substantially accomplish the results aimed at. The difficulty of amending the Constitution is so great that only real necessity can justify a resort thereto. Every effort should be made in dealing with this subject as with the subject of the proper control by the national government over the use of corporate wealth in interstate business, to devise legislation which without such action shall attain the desired end. But if this fails, there will ultimately be no alternative to a constitutional amendment. It would be impossible to overstate, though it is, of course, difficult quantitatively to measure, the effect upon a nation's growth to greatness of what may be called organized patriotism, which necessarily includes the substitution of a national feeling for mere local pride, with, as a resultant, a high ambition for the whole country. No country can develop its full strength so long as the parts which make up the whole each put a feeling of loyalty to the part above the feeling of loyalty to the whole. This is true of sections, and it is just as true of classes. The industrial and agricultural classes must work together. Capitalists and wage workers must work together if the best work of which the country is capable is to be done. It is probable that a thoroughly efficient system of education comes next to the influence of patriotism in bringing about national success of this kind. Our federal form of government, so fruitful of advantage to our people in certain ways, in other ways undoubtedly limits our national effectiveness. It is not possible, for instance, for the national government to take the lead in technical industrial education to see that the public school system of this country develops on all its technical, industrial, scientific, and commercial sides. This must be left primarily to the several states. Nevertheless, the national government has control of the schools of the District of Columbia, and it should see that these schools promote and encourage the fullest development of the scholars in both commercial and industrial training. The commercial training should, in one of its branches, deal with foreign trade. The industrial training is even more important. It should be one of our prime objects as a nation, so far as feasible, constantly to work toward putting the mechanic, the wage worker who works with his hands, on a higher plane of efficiency and reward, so as to increase his effectiveness in the economic world and the dignity, the remuneration, and the power of his position in the social world. Unfortunately, at present the effect of some of the work in the public schools is in the exactly opposite direction. If boys and girls are trained merely in literary accomplishments to the total exclusion of industrial, manual, and technical training, The tendency is to unfit them for industrial work and to make them reluctant to go into it or unfitted to do well if they do go into it. This is a tendency which should be strenuously combated. Our industrial development depends largely upon technical education, including in this term all industrial education, from that which fits a man to be a good mechanic a good carpenter, or blacksmith, to that which fits a man to do the greatest engineering feat. The skilled mechanic, the skilled workman, can best become such by technical industrial education. The far-reaching usefulness of institutes of technology and schools of mines or of engineering is now universally acknowledged. And, no less far-reaching, is the effect of a good building or a mechanical trade school, a textile or watchmaking or engraving school. All such training must develop not only manual dexterity, but industrial intelligence. In international rivalry, this country does not have to fear the competition of pauper labor, as much as it has to fear the educated labor of specially trained competitors, and we should have the education of the hand, eye, and brain which will fit us to meet such competition. In every possible way, we should help the wage worker who toils with his hands and who must, we hope in a constantly increasing measure, also toil with his brain. Under the Constitution, the National Legislature can do but little of direct importance for his welfare, save where he is engaged in work which permits it to act under the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution. And this is one reason why I so earnestly hope that both the legislative and judicial branches of the government will construe this clause of the Constitution in the broadest possible manner. We can, however, in such a matter as industrial training, in such a matter as child labor and factory laws, set an example to the states by enacting the most advanced legislation that can wisely be enacted for the District of Columbia. The only other persons whose welfare is as vital to the welfare of the whole country as is the welfare of the wage workers are the tillers of the soil, the farmers. It is a mere truism to say that no growth of cities, no growth of wealth, no industrial development can atone for any falling off in the character and standing of the farming population. During the last few decades, this fact has been recognized with ever-increasing clearness. There is no longer any failure to realize that farming, at least in certain branches, must become a technical and scientific profession. This means that there must be open to farmers the chance for technical and scientific training, not theoretical merely, but of the most severely practical type, the farmer represents a peculiarly high type of American citizenship, and he must have the same chance to rise and develop as other American citizens have. Moreover, it is exactly as true of the farmer as it is of the businessman and the wage worker that the ultimate success of the nation of which he forms a part must be founded not alone on material prosperity, but upon high moral, mental, and physical development. This education of the farmer, self-education by preference, but also education from the outside, as with all other men, is peculiarly necessary here in the United States, where the frontier conditions even in the newest states have now nearly vanished where there must be a substitution of a more intensive system of cultivation for the old wasteful farm management, and where there must be a better business organization among the farmers themselves. Several factors must cooperate in the improvement of the farmer's condition. He must have the chance to be educated in the widest possible sense in the sense which keeps ever in view the intimate relationship between the theory of education and the facts of life. In all education, we should widen our aims. It is a good thing to produce a certain number of trained scholars and students, but the education superintended by the state must seek rather to produce a hundred good citizens than merely one scholar and it must be turned now and then from the class book to the study of the great book of nature itself. This is especially true of the farmer, as has been pointed out again and again by all observers most competent to pass practical judgment on the problems of our country life. All students now recognize that education must seek to train the executive powers of young people, and to confer more real significance upon the phrase, quote, dignity of labor, unquote, and to prepare the pupils so that, in addition to each developing in the highest degree his individual capacity for work, they may together help create a right public opinion and show in many ways social and cooperative spirit organization has become necessary in the business world, and it has accomplished much for good in the world of labor. It is no less necessary for farmers. Such a movement as the Grange movement is good in itself and is capable of a well-nigh infinite further extension for good, so long as it is kept to its own legitimate business." The benefits to be derived by the Association of Farmers for a Mutual Advantage are partly economic and partly sociological. Moreover, while in the long run voluntary efforts will prove more efficacious than government assistance, while the farmers must primarily do most for themselves, yet the government can also do much. The Department of Agriculture has broken new ground in many directions, and year by year it finds how it can improve its methods and develop fresh usefulness. Its constant effort is to give the governmental assistance in the most effective way, that is, through associations of farmers, rather than true or through individual farmers. It is also striving to coordinate its work with the agricultural departments of the several states, and so far as its own work is educational, to coordinate it with the work of other educational authorities. Agricultural education is necessarily based upon general education, but our agricultural educational institutions are wisely specializing themselves making their courses relate to the actual teaching of the agricultural and kindred sciences to young country people or young city people who wish to live in the country. Great progress has already been made among farmers by the creation of farmers' institutes, of dairy associations, of breeders' associations, horticultural associations, and the like. A striking example of how the government and the farmers can cooperate is shown in connection with the menace offered to the cotton growers of the southern states by the advance of the boll weevil. The department is doing all it can to organize the farmers in the threatened districts, just as it has been doing all it can to organize them in aid of its work to eradicate the cattle fever tick in the south. The department can and will cooperate with all such associations and it must have their help if its own work is to be done in the most efficient style. Much is now being done for the states of the Rocky Mountains and Great Plains through the development of the national policy of irrigation and forest preservation. No government policy for the betterment of our internal conditions has been more fruitful of good than this. The forests of the White Mountains and southern Appalachian regions should also be preserved, and they cannot be unless the people of the states in which they lie, through their representatives in the Congress, secure vigorous action by the national government. I invite the attention of the Congress to the estimate of the Secretary of War for an appropriation to enable him to begin the preliminary work for the construction of a memorial amphitheater at Arlington. The Grand Army of the Republic, in its national encampment, has urged the erection of such an amphitheater as necessary for the proper observance of Memorial Day and as a fitting monument to the soldier and sailor dead buried there. In this, I heartily concur and commend the matter to the favorable consideration of the Congress. I am well aware of how difficult it is to pass a constitutional amendment. Nevertheless, in my judgment, the whole question of marriage and divorce should be relegated to the authority of the National Congress. At present, the wide differences in the laws of the different states on this subject result in scandals and abuses, and surely there is nothing so vitally essential to the welfare of the nation, nothing around which the nation should so bend itself to throw every safeguard as the home life of the average citizen. The change would be good from every standpoint. In particular, it would be good because it would confer on the Congress the power at once to deal radically and efficiently with polygamy. And this should be done whether or not marriage and divorce are dealt with. It is neither safe nor proper to leave the question of polygamy to be dealt with by the several states. Power to deal with it should be conferred on the national government. When home ties are loosened, when men and women cease to regard a worthy family life with all its duties fully performed and all its responsibilities lived up to as the life best worth living, then evil days for the commonwealth are at hand. There are regions in our land and classes of our population where the birth rate has sunk below the death rate. Surely, it should need no demonstration to show that willful sterility is, from the standpoint of the nation, from the standpoint of the human race, the one sin for which the penalty is national death, race death, a sin for which there is no atonement, a sin which is the more dreadful exactly in proportion as the men and women guilty thereof are, in other respects, in character and bodily and mental powers, those whom, for the sake of the state, it would be well to see the fathers and mothers of many healthy children, well brought up in homes made happy by their presence. No man, no woman, can shirk the primary duties of life, whether for love of ease and pleasure or for any other cause, and retain his or her self-respect. Let me once again call the attention of the Congress to two subjects concerning which I have frequently before communicated with them. One is the question of developing American shipping. I trust that a law embodying in substance the views or a major part of the views expressed in the report on this subject laid before the House at its last session, will be passed. I am well aware that in former years, objectionable measures have been proposed in reference to the encouragement of American shipping, but it seems to me that the proposed measure is as nearly unobjectionable as any can be. It will, of course, benefit primarily our seaboard states, such as Maine, Louisiana, and Washington. But what benefits part of our people in the end benefits all, just as government aid to irrigation and forestry in the West is really of benefit not only to the Rocky Mountain states, but to all our country. If it prove impracticable to enact a law for the encouragement of shipping generally, then at least provision should be made for better communication with South America, notably for fast mail lines to the chief South American ports. It is discreditable to us that our business people, for lack of direct communication in the shape of lines of steamers with South America, should in that great sister continent be at a disadvantage compared to the business people of Europe. I especially call your attention to the second subject, the condition of our currency laws. The National Bank Act has ably served a great purpose in aiding the enormous business development of the country. And within 10 years, there has been an increase in circulation per capita from $21.41 to $33.08. For several years, evidence has been accumulating that additional legislation is needed. The recurrence of each crop season emphasizes the defects of the present laws. There must soon be a revision of them, because to leave them as they are means to incur liability of business disaster. Since your body adjourned, there has been a fluctuation in the interest on call money from 2% 30%, and the fluctuation was even greater during the preceding six months. The Secretary of the Treasury had to step in and by wise action put a stop to the most violent period of oscillation. Even worse than such fluctuation is the advance in commercial rates and the uncertainty felt in the sufficiency of credit even at high rates. All commercial interests suffer during each crop period. Excessive rates for call money in New York attract money from the interior banks into the speculative field. This depletes the fund that would otherwise be available for commercial uses, and commercial borrowers are forced to pay abnormal rates, so that each fall, a tax, in the shape of increased interest charges, is placed on the whole commerce of the country. The mere statement of these has shows that our present system is seriously defective. There is need of a change. Unfortunately, however, many of the proposed changes must be ruled from consideration because they are complicated, are not easy of comprehension, and tend to disturb existing rights and interests. We must also rule out any plan which would materially impair the value of the United States 2% bonds now pledged to secure circulations, the issue of which was made under conditions peculiarly creditable to the Treasury. I do not press any especial plan. Various plans have recently been proposed by expert committees of bankers. Among the plans which are possibly feasible, and which certainly should receive your consideration, is that repeatedly brought to your attention by the present Secretary of the Treasury, the essential features of which have been approved by many prominent bankers and businessmen. According to this plan, national banks should be permitted to issue a specified proportion of their capital in notes of a given kind. The issue to be taxed at so high a rate as to drive the notes back when not wanted in legitimate trade. This plan would not permit the issue of currency to give banks additional profits, but to meet the emergency presented by times of stringency. I do not say that this is the right system. I only advance it to emphasize my belief that there is need for the adoption of some system which shall be automatic and open to all sound banks so as to avoid all possibility of discrimination and favoritism. Such a plan would tend to prevent the spasms of high money and speculation which now obtain in the New York market, for at present there is too much currency at certain seasons of the year, and its accumulation at New York tempts bankers to lend it at low rates for speculative purposes. Whereas at other times, when the crops are being moved, there is urgent need for a large but temporary increase in the currency supply. It must never be forgotten that this question concerns businessmen generally quite as much as bankers. Especially is this true of stockmen, farmers, and businessmen in the West, for at present, at certain seasons of the year, the difference in interest rates between the East and the West is from 6 to 10%, whereas in Canada the corresponding difference is but 2%. Any plan must, of course, guard the interests of Western and Southern bankers as carefully as it guards the interests of New York or Chicago bankers, and must be drawn from the standpoints of the farmer and the merchant no less than from the standpoints of the city banker and the country banker. The law should be amended so as specifically to provide that the funds derived from customs duties may be treated by the Secretary of the Treasury as he treats funds obtained under the Internal Revenue Laws. There should be a considerable increase in bills of small denominations. Permission should be given banks, if necessary under settled restrictions, to retire their circulation to a larger amount than three millions a month. I most earnestly hope that the bill to provide a lower tariff for or else absolute free trade in Philippine products, will become a law. No harm will come to any American industry, and while there will be some small but real material benefit to the Filipinos, the main benefit will come by the showing made as to our purpose to do all in our power for their welfare. So far, our action in the Philippines has been abundantly justified, not mainly, and indeed not primarily, because of the added dignity it has given us as a nation by proving that we are capable, honorably and efficiently, to bear the international burdens which a mighty people should bear but even more because of the immense benefit that has come to the people of the Philippine Islands. In these islands, we are steadily introducing both liberty and order to a greater degree than their people have ever before known. We have secured justice. We have provided an efficient police force and have put down ladronism. Only in the islands of Leyte and Samar is the authority of our government resisted, and this by wild mountain tribes under the superstitious inspiration of fakers and pseudo-religions leaders. We are constantly increasing the measure of liberty accorded the islanders, and next spring, if conditions warrant, we shall take a great stride forward in testing their capacity for self-government by summoning the first Filipino Legislative Assembly. And the way in which they stand this test will largely determine whether the self-government thus granted will be increased or decreased, for if we have erred at all in the Philippines, it has been in proceeding too rapidly in the direction of granting a large measure of self-government. We are building roads, We have, for the immeasurable good of the people, arranged for the building of railroads. Let us also see to it that they are given free access to our markets. This nation owes no more imperative duty to itself and mankind than the duty of managing the affairs of all the islands under the American flag, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Hawaii so as to make it evident that it is in every way to their advantage that the flag should fly over them. American citizenship should be conferred on the citizens of Puerto Rico. The harbor of San Juan in Puerto Rico should be dredged and improved. The expenses of the federal court of Puerto Rico should be met from the federal treasury. The administration of the affairs of Puerto Rico together with those of the Philippines, Hawaii, and our other insular possessions, should all be directed under one executive department, by preference the Department of State or the Department of War. The needs of Hawaii are peculiar. Every aid should be given the islands, and our efforts should be unceasing to develop them along the lines of a community of small freeholders, not of great planters with coolly tilled estates. Situated as this territory is in the middle of the Pacific, there are duties imposed upon this small community which do not fall in like degree or manner upon any other American community. This warrants our treating it differently from the way in which we treat territories contiguous to or surrounded by, sister territories or other states, and justifies the setting aside of a portion of our revenues to be expended for educational and internal improvements therein. Hawaii is now making an effort to secure immigration, fit in the end to assume the duties and burdens of full American citizenship, and whenever the leaders in the various industries of those islands finally adopt our ideals and heartily join our administration in endeavoring to develop a middle class of substantial citizens, a way will then be found to deal with the commercial and industrial problems which now appear to them so serious. The best Americanism is that which aims for stability and permanency of prosperous citizenship rather than immediate returns on large masses of capital. Alaska's needs have been partially met, but there must be a complete reorganization of the governmental system. As I have before indicated to you, I ask your especial attention to this. Our fellow citizens who dwell on the shores of Puget Sound with characteristic energy are arranging to hold in Seattle the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition. Its special aims include the upbuilding of Alaska and the development of American commerce on the Pacific Ocean. This exposition, in its purposes and scope, should appeal not only to the people of the Pacific Slope, but to the people of the United States at large. Alaska, since it was bought, has yielded to the government 11 millions of dollars of revenue and has produced nearly 300 millions of dollars in gold, furs, and fish. When properly developed, it will become in large degree a land of homes. The countries bordering the Pacific Ocean have a population more numerous than that of all the countries of Europe their annual foreign commerce amounts to over three billions of dollars, of which the share of the United States is some seven hundred millions of dollars. If this trade were thoroughly understood and pushed by our manufacturers and producers, the industries not only of the Pacific Slope, but of all our country, and particularly of our cotton-growing states, would be greatly benefited. Of course, in order to get these benefits, we must treat fairly the countries with which we trade. End of Section 22